You're listening to Garbage Into Gold, a Sixers podcast hosted by Brandon Apter and Jesse Larch. Part of Philadelphia Sports Nation, visit online at phlsportsnation.com. Garbage into gold. Welcome back, everybody. It's a brand new episode of Garbage Into Gold, a Sixers podcast, part of Philadelphia Sports Nation. I just realized I repeated everything that people just heard in our intro, but that's okay. We are excited, even though it was an ugly win. The Sixers just beat the Cavaliers by one point on Tuesday night. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Apter, joined by Jesse Larch co-host jesse how are you feeling after that win you know it's a win but not a whole lot great to take away from it yeah there's definitely not a whole lot great to take away from it um i personally am missing al horford more than ever i haven't been shy about how much i think al horford can bring to this team and a game like tonight just kind of affirms those feelings for me that if he's at lineup it's as big if not a bigger loss than anyone else missing from the lineup Yeah, and Al Horford was out against the Cavaliers. Ben Simmons returned, played 35 minutes, finished with 15.6 assists, five rebounds. Looked pretty solid in his return. Even even in the first quarter of the game, he hit a nice turnaround fadeaway jump shot, but kind of fell into his older tendencies of driving to the lane, realizing that he doesn't have a whole lot of space and then passing back out in the later quarters. But um, just quickly before we get into this game, the, the heart of this game really Tobias Harris was one of the big disappointments of this game going over 11 from three point range. It was said by Brett Brown after the game that he was dealing with a stomach virus, virus, hashtag NBA poops. But in the final minutes, Tobias Harris put together two straight possessions where he got clutch baskets for the Sixers. And despite the 0 for 11, he came up when they needed him most. But to this point in the season, Harris has just not been what we have wanted from three point range. So, I'm not really I'm not going to get into he wasn't worth the 5 years or the 180 million dollars but I feel like it's to the point now where I'm a little bit concerned about it just because the primary reason offensively that I feel like he was signed to that deal was because he because he has a track record of being able to shoot three pointers. You don't want Joel Embiid to be the best three-point shooter on the team. I know Furkan Korkmaz is, but you need somebody in that starting lineup like Harris to be able to be relied on in those situations. And tonight, even though he had a stomach virus, 0 for 11 and really missed on some of those like really, really badly. So not sure your thoughts on Harris aside from tonight, but overall through the... 10 games i i just haven't really loved what i've seen from him on the court in general i still think he's been a major contributor for the team we've seen a couple games where he's kind of been the driving force in the second half um the detroit game in particular he kind of won that game for them you mentioned the two buckets he got in crunch time tonight he also assisted the winning basket 
So I think he's done it. Like he's finding ways to impact the game, even when his shot's not there, which it's not right now. And because he's like started on a slump, there's that feeling it might be the whole season, but I'd be really surprised if he doesn't get hot at some point with his, with his shooting touch. It's, I mean, this is a guy that was shooting 40% or better from three the last couple seasons. He came over different scheme. He's asked to do it a little bit differently. He was kind of more shooting off the dribble than he was catch and shoot. So I think that's an adjustment for him. And I think it's an adjustment for Josh Richardson, too, who's also shooting really poorly from three, too. Overall, like you said, you can't really be relying on Joel Embiid as a three-point shooter. And we knew that'd be the issue coming in. But with Tobias Harris, I'm not ready to worry about him yet because I still think he's given the team valuable minutes. I still think he's been impactful on the offensive end. And where the Sixers have really been dominating teams has been on the glass, and Harris has been great on the glass, especially on the offensive end. So with all of that taken into account, I'm not worried about Tobias just yet, and I fully expect him to get back on track sooner than later. Yeah, and, and to go along with Harris, Josh Richardson has has been pretty much what we expected him to be on defense, but when it comes to shooting from beyond the arc, not exactly what we want to see yet. I'm not too concerned about it because he's a guy that will probably figure it out, still finding his role on this new team, but one for eight from beyond against the Cavaliers. The Sixers as a team, 21.1% from three-point range, which not ideal, and and that's why you see them winning a game against Cleveland by one point. Now, they get Ben Simmons back, and, and I touched on that briefly what what have you seen from Ben Simmons so far in, in a game like this? He looked aggressive at times, didn't seem to be favoring his shoulder very much, but I put this as a note that we were going to talk about at some point, so I figure now is a good time as any, but Ben Simmons, we'll, we'll talk about him first, is how through 10 games, he's missed two of them. We've seen spurts of aggression, but really not a whole lot if anything, have we seen progression-wise, not that he needs to be shooting 10 jumpers a game or even get to the point where he's shooting threes. Being aggressive, getting to the line makes up for not shooting three-pointers and not shooting jump shots, but I feel like he's just falling into old habits. And although he had a good stat line of 15, 6, and 5 against the Cavaliers, 7 for 9 shooting, I feel like it's still hurting the team spacing a lot, especially when Al Horford returns to the lineup. In crunch time, he's he's more or less, a, in my mind, a zero-type player the way he is in the half court because unless they're in transition, I feel like he's not very effective. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating. You know, we talked about all of these championship aspirations, and if Ben Simmons is not going to advance his game a little bit like we were part of those championship aspirations that we talked about were with the assumption that Ben Simmons adds at least a 15 footer and he hasn't really done that yet that little extra bit of spacing would help tons especially when you have guys like Harrison Richardson struggling to shoot because you want to get them a little bit more space to have that little bit of time to set up and get their shots off and build their confidence because if they have to keep battling for their shots and their looks the way that they are right now it's just going to be a long season, and really, it lessens my confidence about this team when it comes time for a playoff run. Yeah, 
I'm with you there. And we know it's, it's 10 games into the season. So he may not be the player that he is in March now. Hopefully he is not. There's no doubting his defensive ability, but towards the end of games when he's on the court, you almost feel like having a Mike Scott or a Howell Neto, somebody who is at least a threat to shoot, might be better on the offensive end. But I, I don't really think that there's going to be moments where we're going to see Brett Brown taking timeouts to really switch Ben Simmons in and out. He's going to be in there no matter what. But like you said, it's it's been frustrating. And the other young superstar in the Sixers, Joel Embiid, had a, had a solid night against the Cavs, 27 points, only two turnovers, which is much different from the eight that he had against Denver a couple of games ago, 16 rebounds and, and just looked a little bit more like himself. He hit three uh, triples out of five, 10 for 10 or 20 from the field against a team like Cleveland. I was a little surprised that he didn't get to the line more. He hit four of five from the line. The Sixers went to the line only 13 times and they're a team. I feel like need to win games by being aggressive and getting to the free throw line. And we didn't really see that, but to this point, the one thing that we've really wanted to see out of Joel Embiid coming out of the summer, and we know that he was rehabbing that knee a little bit, but worked with Drew Hanlon to help pass out of double teams and, and work on his passing a little bit. And he did have four assists in this game, but it still looks like he's holding the ball a little bit too long in the post and having trouble making quick decisions when he's double teamed. And unless he improves on that, which I believe is a more fixable thing than a Ben Simmons jump shot. Um, I'm not exactly sure how, like, I feel like he's also a liability when it comes to crunch time because he holds the ball for too long and can't really make quick decisions. But I think he's still getting up to speed at this point. You know, we don't, we don't know how a hundred percent he is. So I'm not really sure where he is and, and, that terms of things, but what have you seen from Embiid so far? And do you like his effort against the Cavs? Yeah, I thought he was great against the Cavs. Tristan Thompson, I mean, it's a guy you expect Embiid to dominate, but Thompson will test people. He's a very physical center, even though he's a little bit undersized. And, you know, he's a guy who's no slouch on the boards. Like, for being 6'9", Tristan Thompson is generally a guy with double-digit rebounds every game. Um, you look at crunch time Embiid, I think – what he's been doing and what he's kind of done throughout his time as a sixer, aside from when Jimmy Butler was the one taking the last shot is Embiid gets this Atlas mentality where he wants to put the world on his shoulders and he wants to be the guy to, you know, hit the winning shot and to seal a team's fate. And that's not always the best decision to make. Maybe there's a better shot open or maybe, you know, when he flails and tries to draw a foul and not really put a ball towards the rim. That's probably the most frustrating thing to me is when he's trying to play to the refs at the end of a game instead of just using the fact that you're seven foot two, two 280 pounds and bullying people to the rim and just going over the top and playing that way. You know, you'd like to see a little bit more, I guess, I mean, not to sound like a get off my porch kind of thing because I really love the way the current NBA plays. But when you have talents like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, why aren't these guys just trying to hammer people late in games, especially when they're in the bonus, you know, when guys have their foul yeah. counts up and don't want to foul because they don't want to be out of the game. 
that's the time to attack the rim. And we just, we're not seeing that. It's all mid-range and three-pointers. That's not what this team needs to do. This team's strength should be bully ball. With that roster they've put together, there's no reason they can't overpower anyone they play. And I think... Yeah, getting to the line 13 times just is not what you want to see from a team like this. No, not at all. And I think Charlotte was the same thing. They didn't get to the line a lot against Charlotte either. And, I mean, that's how, like, the game went Atlanta. Atlanta was a scrappy game, and they won the game by getting to the line at the end. You know, using that physicality, that's such a tool. And, again, you know, especially with the way the league is now, the league is a smaller league as far in terms of strength, in terms of muscle. You know, it's a lot more speed and finesse than it is power. So when that's your strength and other teams don't have that, or if they want to put strength on the floor, they have to sub out, say, you know, a Carl Anthony Towns for someone's a little more physical off of the bench. You know, that kind of thing. The Sixers need to take advantage of that because there's no reason that they can't just go in there and impose their will on teams late in games. And I maybe they're just not geared that way. Maybe it's a mentality thing, but they kind of just need that killer instinct and really i think that'll do wonders for the team's confidence too you know there's just something about dominating someone else that makes you feel good about yourself i think that would go really really long way with Embiid and simmons yeah and and moving away from the starting lineup just for a little bit the bench has been one of the strong points for the sixers and over the past two games we have seen rookie matisse thibel getting DNP CDs for the first time in his young career. But he returned against the Cavaliers, only took one shot and made it, but was a team high plus five on the court. He had three blocks and two steals, very active on the defensive end. He was baited into a couple of fouls, which didn't necessarily look like they were fouls on him. But I thought he came back after the two DNP CDs and looked pretty strong, but I feel like we might see this from Brett Brown every now and then. I think this is just kind of Thibel's first year on a contending team. The Sixers need offense, especially on a night like tonight, which is why he only played 13 minutes uh, compared to guys like James Ennis and Mike Scott that played 18 or 19, but it was nice to see Thibel come back and do what he did best defensively. And it's nice to see that he has not lost that confidence on that side of things either. Yeah. And Molly Sullivan said during the game that it was a planned rest. From- you mean Serena winters? Oops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So when Serena winters, correct me, um, said during the game that Brett Brown kind of planned to sit Thibel for those two or three games there. I mean, I don't agree with the decision and I understand fan outrage. I mean, I got into it with on Twitter with a couple of people that wanted to fire Brett Brown again. And I can understand frustration when you have a guy like Thibel, who's already showing to be a difference maker and you have him on the bench in favor of, you know, I mean, James, people hate on James Ennis. I kind of like James Ennis. I think he brings a bit of energy that the team lacks. Um, and I think it's a case where, you know, you have an 11-man rotation right now, and that's not ideal. I think you have to trim the rotation at some point, but I do think Thibault should absolutely be a part of it. Um, you know, this, it was the excuse was with Simmons out, he has to play Neto and Burke. And that kind of limits how many minutes he can give to other spots, which sort of makes sense, but still doesn't really make sense. I would 
I don't understand mm-hmm. why you take Thibel out at this point. I mean, maybe it's just part of his development, but if that keeps happening as the year goes on, I mean, this the frustrations are going to get loud, especially when the team loses. Because not only is this a guy who, like I said, is coming in, proving to make a difference on defense, your team's identity is on defense, so he fits that perfectly. And you're not going to develop him any if he's resting. You know, this is a guy you need his shot to come into form. You need his offensive game to develop a little bit more, especially for when you get to the later months in the year, when you're in March and April. You need Matisse Thibel's game to be better than it is today. And that's not going to happen with him sitting on the bench. Yeah. Somebody who's been uh, on the bench, coming off the bench, but being flip-flopped to the starting lineup is one of the biggest surprises of the Sixers so far. Mr. Furkan Korkmaz, like we all expected, Furkan Korkmaz in his, is this his third year or is his second year? I think it's the third year. Well, one or the other, but he is now the Sixers' most reliable three-point shooter. Had another strong night on Tuesday against the Cavs. Ten points, two for six from beyond, four for nine overall. But really, it's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Six of the last seven games he has scored in double figures, which is huge for a team that loses a J.J. Redick to have somebody come off the bench or even be in the starting lineup for a spot start to be able to come in and have confidence. And that's really what he's, he's gotten. I I'm was very anti Korkmaz. I didn't really understand why they brought him back. I think it was because they missed out on Kyle Korver, but to this point, it looks like his experience in the summer, in the summer doing the FIBA world cup and playing with his native land of uh, Turkey that uh, he, he was able to gain some confidence. And it seems like Brett Brown is, rewarding that confidence with playing time and it's worked out for the Sixers so far in November he's averaging nearly 27 minutes a game and that's something last year or the year before that you would not even think to see from a four cod cork Maz. so I've been very pleased with what I've seen with him from him so far and on the defensive end of things I also believe that he's held his own tonight it looks like he was just He just had a bad matchup on Jordan Clarkson more times than not, but I think more often than not over the last six, seven games, he's really held his own on the defensive side of things. Yeah, I mean, that's something Brett Brown has spoken to that that's what he's happiest with with Furkan right now is he's been an active defender. He's been engaged on the defensive end. He hasn't, you know, been just waiting for his shots and he hasn't been a pylon either. He's, you know, been moving his feet. He's been trying to, play with the scheme on that end where J.J. Redick, you're not saying he wasn't trying, but he just couldn't do it. Now, you look at what he's done on the offensive end, shooting in the mid-40s, which from three, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, we've seen the summer league outburst, the preseason outburst, and like you said in the FIBA World Cup, where Cork Maz goes on these tears and you know he ends up being a great scorer, but he's never done it in the NBA, and I think part of what it is right now is just kind of getting that rhythm down. Certainly a big part of it is confidence, which you can tell just in the way he's playing that, you know, he's really believing in himself right now, and you can tell the team trusts him too, which I'm sure helps him, you know, feel more comfortable being the guy to take those shots. Um, Brett Brown said he needs to develop a bomber. And a bomber. I just mentioned, yeah. 
I just mentioned how you know people are already trying to fire Brett Brown again after that road trip, which <laughs> was upsetting. But this is what Brett Brown has proven time and time again is taking guys that are appearing to be lost causes, a TJ McConnell, a Robert Covington, and now a Furkan Korkmaz, and yeah. turning them into legitimate difference makers. And Korkmaz has been that throughout the early part of the season so far. I mean, the team is short on three-point shooting. And honestly, without him, I'm not sure their record's where it's at right now. If they don't have him burying shots like he has been, they probably have lost one or two more games. Yeah, I I agree with you on that one. <clears throat> uh, so to just just to wrap up the the Cavs Sixers game, one point win overall. Nice to get the win. I felt like my heart was beating harder than like when I proposed to my now fiance a couple months ago, which I feel really really bad about, but. The, the the close games, it's nice to see them closing some of them out. I know they lost close ones on their road trip, but it's nice to see them close them out. But at the same time, against a team like the Cleveland Cavaliers, I feel like this should be a game like the Hornets, which, you know, it got close towards the end of that when the bench was out there. But for the most part, it was a comfortable win past like the midway point of the third quarter. So I... I, I don't know how much longer my heart can take these really close games. Uh, Brett Brown, I just saw this on Twitter, responded to how he feels about all of the Sixers close games. And the quote was, I sadistically love it. So there is that. But I feel like, you know, even that Kevin Love three pointer that rimmed out against the Cavs on Tuesday. That goes in 99 out of 100 times in any of the past seasons for the Sixers. So they're getting some lucky bounces, but obviously I would have liked to have seen a much more comfortable win. But even a, even a mediocre game from Tobias Harris from three gets you probably a double-digit double win here. Yeah, and as far as the close games go, I kind of point to just the makeup of the team. This team isn't one that's going to be lighting up the scoreboard like we've seen them do in the past at times with, you know how you mentioned Harris, if he gets hot, that can happen. And that's what happened with Redick in the past is they would lean on that kind of three-point scoring to really stretch out the points. But now that this team is built, I think kind of built to be more of a half-court team, you know, to really kind of dominate in the mid-range part, to dominate in the paint. You know, that's more two points and three points that adds up. Suddenly you're not scoring as many. And the team's identity, as I've said, is on the defensive end of the floor. So they've kind of set themselves up to be in a lot of low scoring games. And then you end up with a final like tonight, 98 to 97, both teams under 100 points, which you don't see too often in today's NBA. So with that happening kind of almost nightly now, this, this just might be the Sixers season is having to live through close games. And what I yeah. will say, what I will say is, um, and we said it on the home opener pod with Justin Quinn from the USA Today, that, you know, I feel the closer for this team isn't a player. I feel it's the team defense. And this is another game where, you know, down the stretch, they were down 97-92. They held Cleveland scoreless for the last minute and a half. Right. You know, this is something they've done multiple times already this year is when it's time to ratchet it up and suffocate the other team, they're doing it. 
And that is going to be how this team wins games, especially late. So if they can just keep that going, I'm not going to get too concerned. But, I mean, I think anyone would agree you'd like to not play games this close every night. Yeah. So just going back briefly, I'm not sure how much you have from the game against the Hornets. Got closer in the final minutes, but it was really the Sixers outscoring Charlotte by 12 in the third quarter that led them to be able to win. The bench unit at the end gave up a little bit more than we would have liked, but really solid games from Al Horford, solid game from Tobias Harris, even though he only took one three-point shot, and really another solid showing from Howell Neto and Trey Burke. The bench really in that game did well. Scott with nine points, Ennis with nine points, Korkmaz with 17 points, Burke with 12 so just very, it's nice to have a bench that can complement your starting lineup. In previous years, we've had Joel Embiid leave the floor and the floodgates just kind of open. So that doesn't really seem to be a thing here. I know, aside from Korkmaz emerging, one of the guys that you have talked to me about a lot is Mike Scott, who's been pretty steady for the Sixers so far this season. Yeah, and when he came over last year in the in the Tobias Harris trade, it kind of felt like maybe he was playing a little bit outside of his real ability, similar to how Bellinelli did when we got Bellinelli off of the buyout a couple of years ago. And Bellinelli just came in and was out of his mind. Um, with Mike Scott, I think it's like he comes in, shoots 40% off the bench last year. None of us expected that. We didn't think he'd really do it again this year. And he's, you know, he's not right on that mark, but he's still shooting well from three. He's been active on the defensive end. And the overall thing that I love about the bench, and I've said it before, is the bench does seem to have its own mentality, its own attitude. And with guys like James Ennis, with guys like Mike Scott, Kyle O'Quinn, you know, even uh, Trey Burke to an extent, you know, you have these guys that come in and they feel like they're trying to prove that they're just as good as the starters. Like, you know, they're trying to stake their claim to their minutes. And that's kind of the good thing about having such a deep rotation right now is these guys really are fighting for minutes. You know, if Matisse Thibel gets hot, James Ennis and Mike Scott probably don't see the floor as much. Or if Trey Burke comes in and plays out of his mind, that's how will Neto's minutes. You know, so by not having clear-cut roles, you kind of do get a little bit of extra out of the bench. You know, again, come the end of the season, you want that rotation to be ironed out and defined. But for now, I'm definitely okay with having all of these bodies come off of the bench and finding different ways to impact the game. And so far, I mean, I think you can kind of credit Brett Brown for how he's handled the bench because he's clearly still figuring out the rotations, clearly still figuring out what pieces fit best where. But he's getting production out of everyone he puts in the game right now. Yeah, I agree with you. So now that we've covered the Cavs and and the Hornets game, just quickly looking back on what was a pretty depressing road trip, we got to see the true emergence of Fork, Fork on Korkmaz with that game winner. It looked like one of those games where after Simons hit that shot for Portland, the highs and the lows really got you another buzzer beater that was going to beat the Sixers. But Furkan hits that shot and really building off the momentum that he had from that game into games now and just 
we mentioned it already, so there's no need to beat a dead horse, but just very pleased with what we've seen from Furkan Korkmaz. And, and really, the the Sixers had some issues guarding Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, but in the end, they were able to come up with a clutch shot, which just seems to be something, again, like they could not do in the past. So I was very happy about that Portland win. The next three, not so much. When it comes to Phoenix, Jesse, you're you're a Suns guy, second. Sixers guy first, Suns guy second. So your boy Devin Booker really went off on the Sixers. They went back to their issues of having trouble guarding guys like Devin Booker and the, the, the smaller guards. So were you a little bit would you a little bit torn there or or what was what was going through your mind during that one? I mean, I certainly warned people both on the pod and on social media that the Suns are not the team to sleep on. And I think they continue to prove that week after week that they are. I think they're probably going to be a playoff team out West this year. Um, Their defense is legit. They play great, aggressive team defense. They really seem to have a strong understanding of themselves on the offensive end between what Kelly Oubre brings, what Ricky Rubio does as a facilitator and Devin Booker being the scorer that he is. And they've been playing great without DeAndre Ayton. And when he comes back, maybe they go to an even higher level. Um, But like you just said, with defending the smaller guys, with the ISO players, you know, we saw it with Booker. We saw it in Utah with Mitchell. We even saw it tonight with Jordan Clarkson against Cleveland. You know, I don't know why the Sixers struggle so hard with this. I thought maybe Josh Richardson would clean some of that up. And maybe they just haven't put him in those positions to guard those guys yet. But they need to figure out a way to keep these guys from making such an impact. They did it really well against Boston. Richardson and Thibel combined to bottle up Kemba Walker. But, I mean, you can't deny what's happened since. Mitchell had a great game in the game against Utah. I mean... Yeah, it was that blown coverage on the Bogdanovich three that really was the dagger for the Sixers. Yeah, I was pretty pretty upset about that. That was tough, yeah. Um, Yeah. It it just seemed like a simple switch. You don't even really need to communicate, I felt like. You just look and see where the other guy's going and go the other way. Yeah, there's no excuse for that. Uh, But then, I mean, with Booker, not even that he scored 40, it's that he did it on like 15 of 18 or 15 of 17. That was what blew me away is that he was, I mean, part of that you can chalk it to a guy just being hot, but you can't let someone go with that high of a percentage on that volume of shots. And I think the Sixers could kind of look at that tape and they should find something to learn from that because as much as you mentioned, I, I do like the Suns when the Sixers aren't on, that's a team I like to root for, but you can't be letting anyone shoot that well against you. Yeah. So the <laughs> the final game on the road trip was the 21-point lead blown against the Denver Nuggets. Uh, Nikola Jokic hitting the game winner. He would hit a game winner against Rob Covington and the T-Wolves a night or two later, so two straight for Joker. But uh, the big takeaway for me from this game, other than how the hell do you blow a 21-point lead, is... That final play in the two-minute report should have been a personal foul on Jokic, and I feel like that just says a lot to the whole coach's challenge system or really the challenge replay system in general with the NBA because if there's a play that that looks 50-50 like that in the final two minutes, even the final one minute, like a coach should be like, hey, let's take a look at that. You have to make sure to get those right because if – 
that hypothetically happens in a game in, in March or April and the Sixers or even the playoffs and the Sixers lose a game due to like a bad foul in the playoffs. I mean, that's just, that's just inexcusable. So I feel like the, the, the NBA sooner rather than later needs to find a way to, to perfect or, or make their replay system better because those kind of plays, the Sixers should have won and Bede should have had a wide open layup on that game. And, and, it ends uh, differently, very disappointing. And again, it's just, you gotta, you gotta just, it's, it's shameful for the NBA to, to let that go by in, in the final seconds. So in the context of the game against the Nuggets, I'm not upset about it because I mean, as you just said, they blew a 21 point lead. So it's like, I mean, yeah, maybe it should have been a foul, but you didn't do enough to win the game in my opinion. And then on the larger scale, I do agree with you that, you know, you can't be costing games on calls like that. Like say that game was neck and neck the whole way and it got, you know, the the finish went away because of that. What I think you might see happen though, and you're seeing it in the NFL right now with the new pass interference challenging is I think the refs also have an element of pride where whether the ref doesn't want to make that call in crunch time and decide the game if he doesn't want to be the one to influence the outcome or the ref just has a sense of pride and thinks his call is the right one and doesn't want to be overturned and doesn't really take the challenge seriously. I think in the NFL, you're seeing that right now where there's clear pass interferences or not pass interferences that are getting called and challenged. And a vast majority of the time, the refs are sticking with the call on the field when it's clearly should have went the other way. And it's like, there's no other explanation for that than simple pride and that the refs don't want to be questioned. So I think that's a thing you have to address. Like you're saying, I just don't know how you can really fix it when there's that human error involved. Yeah. It's, it's just tough. And and I agree with you with, you never would have been in that situation if, if you were not to have blown a 21 point lead, but still in, in those moments, even if it ends up be a you blowing or coming back from a deficit, that's not 21 points to have the ability to review even under like, like I said, like 30 seconds or one minute. I don't think that that's going to cause that much of a longer experience at an NBA game. So now that we've talked about the, depressing one and three road trip. The Sixers are seven and three though. So not bad through the first 10 games. If, if you would have told me that they would have gone seven and three be, before the season, I would have been perfectly fine with it. Not knowing how close some of them would have been, but they head out on the road for three more games, uh, visiting Orlando Wednesday night, which is technically tonight because the podcast is coming out on Wednesday. So we get to see Markel Fultz and the Orlando Magic. Not sure if Embiid's going to end up playing the back-to-back. Either way, Horford will be back on the court against Vucevic and the Magic. Then the Sixers go visit Oklahoma City on Friday. Sands, Russell Westbrook, obviously. Chris Paul over there, and we'll get to see Nerlens Noel, former Sixer, too. And the well, really quick, yeah. Forget Chris Paul, forget Nerlens Noel, Shy Gil J is Alexander's the player yeah. to watch out in OKC. Yeah, I was just, yeah. And then the final game of the road trip is against these Cleveland Cavaliers in Cleveland 
on Sunday. Hopefully a little bit more of a comfortable win against the Cavaliers. But looking at these next three games and and really the next stretch of games for the Sixers, they have a lot of winnable games. And so over these next three games, and then they come home to face the the Knicks and the Spurs and the Heat. So really the the next six games are all what seem like a stretch where they should go ideally four and two, but the next three, I feel like are all winnable games. What about you? Yeah, I think so for sure. Orlando and people keep touting Orlando as a playoff team. I don't really know how to take their team. I think they have a lot of size like the Sixers do, but I think there's a lot of raw talent there and it makes it really difficult for me to gauge how good they are. Um, I mean, I'm fully expecting Nick Vucevic to come in and give another, you know, 30 and 20 game just because he loves to play against the Sixers. And if Embiid's resting, like you're suggesting, then maybe it's even worse. (laughs) Um, Or maybe Al Horford's the guy that can finally stop Vucevic because no one else has played for the Sixers, hasn't been able to. OKC should be an easy win. I mentioned uh, Shigel, J.S. Alexander. I mean, I think he's having a great year. I really liked him coming out of Kentucky. So I'm glad he's getting a chance to shine out in OKC. But overall, OKC is just not that competitive of a team, in my opinion. And then they should definitely beat Cleveland in Cleveland. Honestly, after tonight's game, they should go into Cleveland, steamroll them. And if they don't, I mean, I'll personally be upset because they kind of they kind of need to prove it to themselves that they can beat the bad teams. That's what good teams do. Good teams demolish the bad teams. And we need to see the Sixers start doing that. Yeah, we haven't really seen them steamroll anybody, but I think over the next three games, you could not easily, but you should go three and oh, if there's any loss that I see, I think it would probably be against Orlando just because of Vucevic's uh, success against the Sixers in the past. But Hopefully they're able to shut down him. I don't want no Mark Elfold's revenge game. I think Oklahoma City and Cleveland both very winnable. And then they come home for for three more, one of which includes Jimmy Butler's return. So we'll talk about that on the next episode. But we, I think that's about a wrap. Jesse, anything else? I'm fine leaving it where it is. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And one more time, thank you. Oh, Big news, Jesse, the Giants, the San Francisco Giants have chosen Gabe Kapler as their next manager. Any thoughts on that? Really none. I think they have a a horrible roster and (laughs) I think he's about as average of a manager as there is. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. A lot of people think that he shouldn't have gotten fired from the Phillies, but I also think that he was not very good. So we'll see how he does in San Francisco. Just glad he's not in Philadelphia anymore. Anyway, that will wrap things up for this episode of Garbage Into Gold. A big shout out to our partner over at Philadelphia Sports Nation. Make sure they're following them at PHL Sports Nation and at PHL Sixers Nation and online at phlsportsnation.com. We'll catch you next time on another episode of Garbage Into Gold. Go Sixers!